Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Bela Fleck is considered one of the most versatile banjo players in the world. He plays everything from traditional bluegrass to progressive jazz and classical music. He's won 15 Grammy Awards, two for Perpetual Motion, an album of pieces by Bach and Chopin and others. And he's just released a new classical album called The Imposter, featuring the Nashville Symphony and the string quartet Brooklyn Rider from New York. And he's played a cafe concert for us today at WQXR. Bela Fleck, what is The Imposter named for? Is that you? Do you ever feel like you're, you're fooling everybody and you don't actually belong? <laughs> Every um, day at work, actually. Yes. Oh, yeah? yeah. You're like right now? Yeah. 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 And sometimes I feel that way because a lot of times I'm trying to put the banjo into unique situations for it and for myself as a musician. So there is that feeling that uh, if everybody figured out, you know, that I didn't belong there, I'd be kicked out and I wouldn't get to do it. And yet you dedicated this album to Earl Scruggs. Yes. Who is one of the most authentic musicians that you could think of oh, in, yeah. in American music. So why him for The Imposter? Well, this is one of those things that he didn't get to do. And Earl Scruggs did so many things, I mean, from bringing the banjo out of the hills and back into the mainstream. Because the banjo was a very popular instrument, late 1800s, early 1900s. And then it pretty much had, was dying out in terms of the mainstream. Um, but when, when bluegrass came out, it kind of revitalized the banjo and made it, you know, popular instrument again. Why did the banjo disappear? It, it's an African-American originated instrument. Was it pushed aside because of connections with that culture, or just did it not have a have a place? Because it is in, it's in 20s and 30s jazz. There's right. banjos in those, th- they're part of the rhythm it's in, section. It's in Louis Armstrong's early early groups, too. Yeah. So what happened to Yeah, it? well, my understanding, and I had a talk with a, a fellow named Danny Barker, who, who is a banjo player from New Orleans, uh, who played with Cab Calloway and folks like that, and he said that... Um, what happened was there was a record that came out and um, with guitar on it, and overnight all the banjo players were out of work. And he said that um, it had so much impact that they made. In fact, you know what a tenor guitar is? That's a, that's a, an instrument tuned like a banjo that sounds like a guitar. So all these banjo players who didn't know how to play guitar could work. It could sound like a guitar. But anyway, he told me that he w- he was uh, playing with Cab Calloway a number of years later and said, hey, Vega will give me a free banjo if I play it on one song in our show. And Cab said, that old thing, we don't want to have anything to do with that anymore. And so if you think about all the blackface stuff and, and all the minstrel days, uh, you know, where the folks are, you know, putting on, you know, painting themselves black and acting like it's great to be on the plantation and stuff like that. You can kind of see why um, black folks were happy to see it go. Mm. One of the things that amazed me about the cafe concert that you did today is that you play the banjo more softly than anybody that I've, that I've ever heard. But the banjo doesn't have quite the emotional range of a guitar. I wonder if that's part of the reason why it got pushed aside, too, especially as recording techniques got better. Uh, you could show more nuances of an instrument than, than well, maybe are available in a banjo. I would argue that it's the player, not the instrument, and that there's some very emotive banjo playing out there. And that's the stereotype, I think, about the banjo, is that it can only be happy. And, <laughs> you know, I've tried... I, I've done some very sad banjo playing, not intentionally, but... <laughs> Um, it's definitely possible, and I've heard people play the soulful, simple melodies on the banjo that make you want to cry. And so it's really about the musician. You read tablature, but for notation of of music in the imposter in the new album, you used computer software to help help you out. How did right? Because how, for some reason, these other musicians don't read banjo tablature. <laughs> it's bizarre. <laughs> banjo how limited of them. I can't believe it. They're supposed to be really good, you know. 
But uh, no, banter tablature is a lot like loot tablature. It's a number system. And the reason why I still use it after all these years is because there's a lot of different places to play the same note on a banjo neck. And they can be a foot apart. And if the next note is like a quarter of a second later, you simply can't get to the next note just by knowing what it is. You have to know where it is. It's almost more important to know where it is. So um, for me, that's that's critical because, you know, we're playing eight notes a second at a medium tempo bluegrass song. So anyway, my trick was like, how do I write for an orchestra? Writing for me is easy because I know how to do that and I can read it back from the tablature. But how do I write for all of these guys? And yeah, I used a, a software program called Sibelius and I learned how to input notes one at a time. And I also could could. Um, write things in the tablature and copy them and paste them, take them from the banjo stave and put them on a violin stave, and it would turn it into notation. And I could hear back kind of what it was going to sound like in a computer simulation kind of version. And then I'd alter it. I'd just go, well, that was interesting, but, you know, you're not going to play the same as the banjo part. I need to come up with a, a discrete part. And then I would, it was very painstaking. How long did it take you then to write the concerto? Uh, well, I started in October, and I had the first run through in, I believe it was March, so five or six months. Uh, but I also was touring with the Flectones as well, doing other things. There was several periods where I did nothing but write, which were really fun. It still sounds like you were pretty efficient, considering all the possibilities that the computer program gives you to change things. Right. Well, that's what I well, that's what I hear. But to me, it was like it was nonstop. It, I mean, I was I would come off stage, get on the bus put on the headphones and write and you know and I write all day and and then go do shows. <laughs> so uh, but it was it was a it was a privilege to get and to get paid, you know, when you get commissioned someone says here here's some money go write, you know, and okay. That just made me feel like a real live composer there for a second. <laughs> Thank you. 
You've been working in classical music for more than 10 years. You, you've worked with the Nashville Symphony before, did a double concerto for banjo and bass uh, almost 10 years ago, collaborated with Edgar Meyer and with an Indian percussionist named Zakir Hussain and with Leonard Slatkin, triple concerto out of all that. How do you approach a concerto with instruments plucked from different schools of music around the world? How do you put it together? Well, I mean, the thing to remember is everybody should be themselves. It's not about trying to put you in a straitjacket and make you into something you're not. It's to showcase what you are in the context of an orchestra. So I think Edgar's really good. He was my kind of, I'd say, mentor in terms of writing for orchestra because I knew I'd seen him do it. I saw him premiere his first concerto and was really proud of him and how great it was. And then he, when I had the chance to write a, one with him, a, he was the leader, and I just funneled ideas and made suggestions and, and collaborated. And when we did the triple concerto, Zakir and I did the same thing. We just funneled ideas, came up with melodies. But Edgar had the grand plan, you know, uh, with his all of his knowledge of classical composition. And those pieces turned out really, really wonderfully. But it, a lot of times I wondered, what would I do if Edgar wasn't here? And could I do it? And what would it turn out like? And that's why I really wanted a chance to to do my own concerto. And I, I loved the experience. Nashville's had an interesting summer. Uh, they almost lost the Skirmerhorn Center uh, with some financial troubles, musician troubles as well. It looks like it's all resolved. But did this impact your work on this album at all? It really didn't. All of this stuff was happening much later. You know, but it's part of the story. I mean, you know, stories just start and stop where you start and stop writing. So the story of the Nashville Symphony and all that it's been able to pull off in the, in the last few years, from building that that hall to the big flood we had and twenty million dollars or some more of of damage and and bring you know bringing it back from that and then uh, and then these money problems. So I you know uh, the one thing that's amazing. I mean, I've seen some of the most brilliant concerts down there. That the orchestra is sounding better than it's ever sounded. And the city is excited about them, and I s- really think they're going to figure it out. Bela Fleck, you were named after Bela Bartok. Your middle names are Anton Webern and Leosh for Janacek. Your grandfather gave you your first banjo. Was he taking revenge on your parents for not naming you after him? <laughs> no, no, but uh, if I could talk to him now, I'd, 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 I'd tell him he got screwed there. <laughs> <laughs> so your parents were big classical music fans, and then and then you pick up the banjo. Any conflict about that? Any uh, disappointment? Yes, and you can lie down on the couch for a more <laughs> comfortable position to answer this question. Oh, from. no, you're really going to feel like a therapist when I tell you this. But uh, my mother and my father split up when I was one, and my father is the one who named me with all of these names. And so um, he, he really uh, had and, – and then it was one of those situations where they just really completely split up, and he's not on the scene. In fact, I only met him in my 40s. Mm-hmm. And so he had absolutely no influence except these names. So it's kind of like the boy named Sue. You know, you give him this name and he learns to fight. Well, somehow I got these names. But uh, honestly, the the really special person who 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 uh, gave me all the influence was my stepfather, Joe Palladino, who plays the cello and was in the Seventh Army Symphony. And he was always playing string quartets and things around the house. And so um, I got a lot of those influences anyway through him. And uh, he just passed away this last week. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, it's been 13 years since you did Perpetual Motion, this uh, classical album that's so great. Has the classical world looked less askance at you since then? Or did that album give you some, some ins in places where you didn't have them before? Has it changed your reception? 
Well, I have to say that the album had more impact than I ever thought it would in terms of changing people's perceptions about the banjo. And when I go into a town and, and uh, for instance, we're doing a concerto performance and uh, I go to the radio station, they say, hey, you know, we love Perpetual Motion. I'm like, oh, wow, you actually played it? Yeah, we still play it. I'm like, well, that's great, you know. So in that way, but in another way, you know, when you make a record, you put all this time and energy into it and then maybe, maybe you tour it and then you go on to whatever you're doing next. And so as as far as people's perceptions of it, I don't really, really know. You know I'm sort of busy up about what I'm doing next. Yeah, you're, about that album is back there and you're about now. Yeah, but I'm very proud of it. Because at the time, it was a hard record to make, which, which it proves that like how hard something is to do uh, has nothing to do with its eventual worth. How hard or easy has, has nothing to do with its, its, its worth. So you, you have to um, remember that when you're embarked on a tough task that just because it's hard doesn't mean it's not really worthwhile. When you say hard to make, um, resistance from financial backers or record companies difficult to no, play? What do you mean? Physically. Physically, because I was learning, because at that time the computers didn't have tablature programs that were viable, so every single note of it had to be transcribed by hand, and the fingerings worked out, and I had this wa- this page covered with whiteout where I'd be crossing out these fingerings, and it took me so long, and learning the pieces and then playing them to, to just to perform them one time in the studio you know, all the work was immense, especially if you listen to things like Perpetual Motion and think what it took to get that on the banjo. But the learning process was, you know, fantastic. And that's one of the things I love about doing a lot of different things. When you do something new, your growth your growth is very quickly because there's so much information. You know, when you're really, really good at something, uh, you have these very small leaps. So it's exciting to, to, to have these, these big growth spurts when you're doing something new. And I learned a lot from doing that record, and I think it influenced the way I wrote the concerto, even though none of it was direct. Mm-hmm. I had now had a lot of exposure to these pieces and spent the time to get inside them. Do you find that your work in the classical genre or your work in, uh, with other kinds of, of instruments around the world, how does that change how people perceive you? Are you, are you still Bela Fleck the bluegrass guy, or are you Bela Fleck the guy who takes a banjo into any room and gets comfortable? Uh, it it's, it's depends on the listeners. You know, one, one person might be a guy who heard me playing bluegrass in the 70s and, and is like, hey, man, I'm still listening to you. you know? And then somebody else might have first heard me on perpetual motion and think that I'm a classical banjo player and sort of surprised. Somebody else might have really be a bass fan that came to see the Flectones and then, you know, has been checking me out since then you know, checking in on certain projects, but not others. Some people might have seen the African film that I did and, and saw it on Netflix and really don't know anything else about me. So it's a weird thing about doing so many different things. Everybody brings their own perception to it. Besides um, the concerto for banjo and orchestra on your new album, uh, you also have a quintet that you've created with our friends from um, just across the East River, uh, Brooklyn Rider. How did that come together, and how did you find a plucked instrument interacting with those instruments that are most often bowed? Yeah, uh, well, that was a lot of fun. You know, um, there's a lot of um, challenges in writing for an orchestra, and, you know, here here I am, an outsider and an imposter, of course, um, noticing that, you know, some of the musicians are 100 feet apart or more, and they're supposed to be playing together. And one of my fundamental you know, learnings of playing music for so many years is the better we all hear each other, the better we all play. So I'm always working on getting people to be hearing each other properly, whether it's through monitors or through placement on stage or whatever. It's impossible with an orchestra. We all have to go to the guy with the stick. But with a with a, a string quartet, we're all sitting very close to each other, just like I would be in a bluegrass band. We can play very supplely, and a lot of things are possible 
that are not possible for the orchestra. And so I really enjoyed, after the, after the constraints of the orchestra writing, uh, thinking so carefully about what could and couldn't be played, really anything I could come up with, these guys could play. And um, mathematical ideas that I had, you know, reductions time over time, you know, unusual retards, anything like that um, they could handle, you know. The new album is called The Imposter, from the banjo master and explorer of all kinds of musical worlds, Bela Fleck. Thanks for visiting with us and playing for us at WQXR. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you.